0: We're in a series that we've entitled The Gospel of John, Meeting Jesus, Learning from Jesus so that we might trust Jesus and believe in him. And we find ourselves in John chapter 10 at the end of that chapter. We, uh, we're in John 10 last week and uh, we learned that Jesus is the shepherd, the one who guides and leads people into a relationship with God. We also learned he's the door. That is, he is the one by which we enter into Uh, this relationship that gives us eternal and everlasting life. And this morning, we come to uh, the end of chapter 10, where we're going to see a lot of opinions and thoughts with regards to Jesus. We're going to see, as as we saw at the end of last week, if you would just even notice in verse 21 of chapter 10, that after Jesus had shared about being the good shepherd and the door where sheep would enter in, This is what individuals said. It said, others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. I'm sorry, these are not the words of one oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now that's on the heels of many saying he was a demon or he was insane. We live in a world just as uh, the first century where many people have opinions about Jesus Now, these opinions, many times, are not based on evidence. But they're opinions nonetheless. Jesus is going to give three evidences today as to why he is the Son of God. But a great many people are not going to believe it. Some are going to believe he's demon-possessed. Others are going to say a demon-possessed person can't do that. Still others are going to believe. And still others, in verse 31, are going to seek to stone him for blasphemy. Like in the first century, today many people have a variety of opinions about Jesus. We live in a world where it seems as if everyone has a certain thought about who Jesus is. But it usually isn't, as I said, based on evidence. In fact, it's what we call the court of public opinion. It's not what's going on in the courtroom, it's not what's going on in the text, it's what's happening outside. What are people thinking outside of what's going to happen? Uh, We could talk about that with regards to today's football game. I could ask you the question, who's going to win the football game today? And some of you will say the Bengals, and others you will say the Rams. And then I would ask the follow-up question, and very few would be able to answer it, why do you think that? In the first service, I asked that question of a lady and she said, well, I think the Rams are gonna win. And I was kinda surprised, she's an older lady, she doesn't look like she's much of a football fan. And I says, well, what makes you so sure that the Rams are gonna win? She says, their uniforms are awesome. <laughs> that's not empirical evidence, that, that's not based on, on any fact, it's based on an opinion about something that's gonna have little to no impact on the game. Many people today, and maybe even some today, or those who are watching online, have opinions about Jesus, not based on fact, but based on popular opinion. In fact, the court of public opinion, one author said, is simply mob justice. It simply is this idea that whatever you want to believe about any particular thing can carry the day. And there are a great many people who are telling us about Jesus, and there are a great many people who agree with them. So the question this morning in our text is who is Jesus? Is he who he says he is? Or can he be whatever we want to make him? Now, as I said, there's a varied opinions about who Jesus is. The religions of the world all would tip the cap to Jesus, And say that he is a great model, a great teacher, a great leader, a statesman. Uh, He is one that showed us what it means to live the good life, the right life. Still others would say he's not God. None of the religions of the world outside of Christianity would ever put Jesus as God. The, far, the closest we get to that is Islam, who says Jesus is a prophet in the line of prophets, but did not complete the work that was given to him. And so Muhammad had to be the last and final prophet to achieve what Jesus couldn't. So Jesus is a lot like Moses. And so the world religions have opinions about Jesus. How about leaders of our day? We've got to go a generation back, but... Would you imagine that Hitler has things to say about Jesus? Here's what he says. In boundless love as a Christian. uh, How many don't put boundless love as a Christian in the words of Hitler? But this is what he says. In boundless love as a Christian, by the way, a great thing, not everybody who calls himself a Christian is a Christian. Okay? He just called himself a Christian. And as a man, I read through the passage, meaning the Gospels, which tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might, seized the scourge to drive out the temple, the brood of vipers, and of the adders. What, what Hitler is saying is my opinion of Jesus is he's a good Nazi. He got rid of the Jews. He's doing what I am doing, and that is dealing with the final solution. That was Hitler's opinion of Jesus. Now, fast forward, and let's go to Hollywood, and let's hear from three individuals in Hollywood who have opinions about Jesus. Now, let's pivot to Brad Pitt. What does Brad say? Speaking of Jesus and his declaration of being God, this is what Brad says. I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. It's as if he's reading the end of John chapter 10. Believe in me, and I will give you eternal life. He says, and then if you don't, then you won't get it. It seemed to me it be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. What he's saying is, is the claims of Jesus are an ego trip. That's Brad Pitt's opinion of Jesus. If he says he's God, then he's on an ego trip because what he says is if you don't follow me, then you're lost. Well, that's what Jesus says, and Brad says to that, it's an ego trip. How about Oprah. Oprah says, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. There are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. I've got so many issues with that statement, but we've only got three hours, right? So so a couple things about this. Jesus declares in this passage and four chapters later that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Oprah says, listen, first of all, he's not the only way. So she's saying, Jesus, you're wrong. Now, she would say she loves Jesus, but her opinion of Jesus says not only is Jesus wrong about being the only way, but there's diverse ways. There's all kinds of ways that you can get to then, by the way, whatever you call God. A lot of opinions about Jesus. Jay-Z made uh, quite, quite a bit of waves as a rapper and as a musician when he said Jesus can't save you and life starts when the church ends. What he's saying is don't waste your time with Jesus. Now he got pushed back on this by reporters who said, you know, you've got a beef with Jesus and he says, take it as you will. Take it as you will. Leaving it up to ambiguity, but surely his lifestyle says that Jesus doesn't save And so we've got all these opinions. Hollywood's telling us opinions about Jesus. Great uh, leaders and dictators, evil men tell us about Jesus. The world religions tell us about Jesus. How about the cults? So the next two individuals we have before us are, help me out here. Let's go to the next one. These guys look different than Jay-Z, by the way. We've got Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. This is the first leader of the Mormons and the second leader of the Mormons. Of course, Brigham Young, a namesake for Brigham Young University. The Mormons. Now, we listen to the Mormons. We hear the Mormons. We've got a Mormon church right up the street here, the closest geographical church to this church. What do they say? In fact, by the way, Mormons, fastest growing uh, Christian denomination by leaps and bounds here in America. They're growing like crazy. If you think Village Bible Church is growing, we are snail's pace to what the Mormons are doing. Here is their belief of Jesus. Let's start with God. God inhabits a planet called Kolob. He is there with his multiplicity of wives. His job is to have lots of relations with lots of wives to produce spirit children. The spirit children are you and I. We inhabit the planet Kolob until we are incarnated into our flesh here on earth. Jesus was the firstborn of our heavenly father with one of his great variety of wives. He came to earth and he lived a life and example to show us how we as spirit children of God can become gods ourselves now I get it they look clean cut many of them they're way better looking than their your pastor is they are going to be articulate they're going to point to the Bible they're going to say passionate things about Jesus but I want you to know their opinion about Jesus is wrong how about the Jehovah's Witness? Those that come and knock at your door. This dude's sporting a cool beard. He is uh, Charles Russell Taze. He's the founder of the Jehovah's Witness movement. He says that Jesus is the human manifestation of the archangel Michael. And so before his existence at Bethlehem, I'm sorry, uh, Jesus was an angel, and after he's sent into heaven, he no longer is Jesus, but he goes back to being the angel Michael. And they'll use passages of scripture that Jesus will return, that God will return with the shout of an archangel, that Jesus Michael is going to announce his coming as this angel. Now, let's stop there and say we've got a variety of opinions, a variety of opinions that say a lot of things about Jesus, and they run the spectrum. Now, I could have spent, and I told the other services, I could have spent the whole time just pasting up on this screen opinions about Jesus. Listen to me. Everyone has an opinion about Jesus, Everybody does. You do, I do, your neighbors do, your family does, your friends do, your bosses do, your schoolmates do. Everyone has an opinion about Jesus. But John chapter 10 is going to ask the question, what is your opinion about Jesus? Where do you stand with regards to Jesus? And you're going to find out that you've got to stand in one position or another, that there is zero middle ground when it comes to your opinion or thinking about Jesus. So what Jesus does is he is going to once again speak to the people around him. And in that group are your average Joes, people like you and I, and and then there's the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. And we're going to see as Jesus is talking to the crowd, sharing with them as he did in John chapter 10, the first part, that I'm the good shepherd, I'm the door, and if you uh, will uh, follow me, if you will uh, follow after me, you will live an abundant life, you'll have an abundant life that the thief won't be able to steal, kill, or destroy. And these people say, you know what? We don't like you. You're a demon-possessed man. Others say, no, a demon-possessed man can't do this. And so they ask Jesus point blank in our text, who are you? And Jesus responds. So let's get to our text this morning. And we're going to see, starting in verse 22, this shared with us by the Apostle John. At the time of the feast of dedication that took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. Let's stop there. So, a couple of things that we're given right away. Very, very first thing I want to look at is the second part of that opening verse. It was winter. Why does John share that? He doesn't share ever that it's spring, that it's fall, that it's summer. He says it is winter. It could have been that he was just creating a timestamp there. But what many scholars believe is that he was doing two things. He was telling us, first of all, when during the year the Feast of Dedications were, because we have no other point of reference for this feast, so he wants us to know what happens in the winter. But many scholars believe also that what he was doing was saying, listen, a cold front's about to come in. A cold front is going to come in. The cold front's not just going to be the cold air outside, but it's the response Jesus is going to get. Whether that's true or not, we know that the coldest response up to this time is going to take place because we're going to learn in verse 31 that when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, it's going to tell us that the response of the people is that they picked up stones to kill him. They're not hiding anymore, they're not trying to be politically correct, they're not trying to be careful with their words, they want Jesus dead. By the way, this is three months from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We are in the last moments of Jesus' life. It is wintertime, and in springtime, Jesus is going to go to the cross. Now notice, we are given this timestamp that this feast of dedication is taking place. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we have any reference to this feast of dedication. The reason why is it hadn't happened yet. What they were about to celebrate in Jerusalem was a festival that was dedicated to a military victory that came after the book of Malachi and before the Gospel of Matthew in the middle of the Old and New Testament. We call that the intertestamental period. And what transpired was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, a Syrian descent man who was Greek politically and a part of the Greek empire, rose to great power to lead the empire. And in doing so, he, like Hitler, wanted to expand the empire. And so he went to the east, or east and to the west to take over whatever land he could. He wanted to put together the land that had been taken by Alexander the Great. And so this man is on this journey to expand his kingdom. And he heads down to Egypt and he is stopped in Egypt. And unlike Hitler, he's smart enough to stop and say, let's just stop here, we can't grow anymore at this time, so let's take some breaks and let's make sure all that we have conquered is in order. That everybody that we have taken into captivity is doing what we say. So he listens to some of his generals and he finds out that the hot spot of rebellion or insurgency is in Israel. It's in Jerusalem. And here's the reason why. There was this decree that you are going to worship Zeus as God. Now, it's a problem for the Israelites. They're a monotheistic people. God is their only God. Yahweh is their God. Jehovah, their God, not Zeus. So they say, We're not going to worship Zeus. And they begin to push back against their captivity. Antiochus Epiphanes leaves. Egypt and he hears about what's happening in Jerusalem And he comes back to Jerusalem. Now, where we learn about this is in what is called an apocryphal book. Books that were written a part of Jewish writings between Malachi and Matthew. The Roman Catholic Church and even some Lutherans put these books into their Bible. They're helpful books. Uh, They're books that give great amount of detail. The church never declared them to be a part of our, our canon of scripture. But here's what Second Maccabees says about these events. When these happenings were reported to Antiochus Epiphanes, he thought that Judea was in revolt, raging like a wild animal. He sent out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses." There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. So the Feast of Dedication had a twofold thing to it. First of all, it would be like December 7th where we celebrate, or not celebrate, but remember the bombing of Pearl Harbor, it would be like 9-11 where we as a nation mourn and remember the loss of life that took place. But this festival of dedication wasn't just a remembrance, but it was a celebration. For three years, Antiochus Epiphanes would rule over Israel. And he would bring great harm and pain to the people of Israel. He would condemn all the writings of the Old Testament. He would burn Old Testament uh, scrolls. He would uh, renounce uh, any worship of Jehovah or Yahweh God. And so the people of God sat there and they thought they were done for. They've lost 40,000 in three days. Many, many hundreds of thousands more after it. And they're a hurting people. That is until about two years after this siege takes place, a group of Israelite men, under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, start to have guerrilla warfare. And in the third year, on December 25th, yes, Christmas, on December 25th, those men would take over all of Jerusalem, including the temple. They would clean up the capital city. They would reconsecrate the temple. And it had been defiled terribly. In fact, one of the acts that had been done by Antiochus Epiphanes is he took a pregnant female sow, a hog, and he put it into the Holy of Holies and he slaughtered it right on the altar. And he gave his praise and homage to Zeus. Now, Daniel 11.3 tells us that all of this was going to transpire. Daniel calls it the abomination that causes desolation. I'm sorry, I give you the wrong passage. Daniel 11.31, Daniel 11.31 prophesies about this. And this is the abomination that causes desolation. And so the people of God, this is this is D-Day. This is when we push back our enemies. This is where we celebrate a great victory. If you don't know this feast by its current name, then you'll miss the greatness of it. This is the celebration of Hanukkah. Because what these individuals doing, what Jesus was doing was celebrating eight nights of giving praise and homage to God for being the one who rescued people from their captivity. So why is this important? Why does John declare that Hanukkah is so important to this subject matter? Because in this celebration, the people of God now more than ever were looking for someone to take care of their captors. They were looking for someone to be their rescuer. They were looking for a valiant warrior that would help and address their issue of what was the biggest problem. And they had even a bigger problem than, than Antiochus Epiphanes now, 200 years later. They had the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was oppressing them. And they were looking for someone to set the captives free. And Jesus comes in, and Jesus starts doing great things, and Jesus starts doing all kinds of wonderful things, and he talks like he's going to set the captives free. He uses that terminology. He says, I'm the one that the prophets foretold about, and the people of God are sitting there saying, yes, finally, John the Baptist is preaching this as he's baptizing people, and the Pharisees come, and they say, nope, he's not the one. So don't worship him, don't follow him, don't listen to him, he's a crazy man and he is to be thought of as nothing but a man who's lost his mind. So here is what we've got in John, at the end of John chapter 10. Now, to look at this, I wanna do three things. I wanna, from a very legal mind, look at three legal terms and and then break out what we've got going on here. First of all, we have an accusation. And we see the public's, views Jesus with hostility. Notice verses 23 through 26. And Jesus walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. They're like, listen, stop beating around the bush. Stop talking in riddles. We wanna know, are you the next Judas Maccabeus? Are you the one who's going to set us free? Now, I want you to notice this isn't, hey, Jesus, got a quick question for you. This is a hostile group of people. Let me explain why. First of all, the phrase, uh, and they gathered around him. You should underline that because that's not, you know, like your small group gathers around your leader, okay? You get together, sit in chairs, you share prayer requests, ask questions. It's just all nice and wonderful, this word literally means to surround, to encircle, and you say, well, that sounds nice, that's like small group, until you find out it was a military term, the Greek word there, that speaks of an invading army surrounding a city to destroy it. Some of you are like, that's exactly my small group. That's it. Some leaders are like, yeah, yeah, they circle around me, right? So they're circling on Jesus like a group of bullies on a schoolyard and they're circling around him and they are wanting to hear from him. They're going to give him a question and how he answers is going to determine if they let him go or if they kill him. And so then they demand an answer. Tell us who you are. It's a test. If Jesus says, I am God, then they have grounds to kill him for blasphemy. If he says he's not God, then he's ruined his whole thing, his whole system and substructure of his whole persona is gone. He's just a crazy man who came and went. He's one of the many who said they're the Messiah, when in fact they were not. The Pharisees have got Jesus, and they love it. They're like, we finally figured it out. So what does Jesus say? I want you to move forward. That Jesus says, after listing a whole bunch of different things in the first handful of verses in our text, he says in verse 30, the crux of it. He says, I and the Father are one. He is saying, I am God. And notice the hostility. The Jews picked up stones, again, to stone him. They want him dead. They don't like his answer, and they feel totally Uh, able uh, and free to kill him. And that's what they want to do. They've been wanting to do this for some time. Now they're going to do it. Now Jesus stops them and he answers them. Okay, I can see you don't like what I'm saying. I can see the hostility that you have. And Jesus answers. And I love what Jesus says. Notice in verse 32. Jesus answers them. Now remember... We don't have, you know, in our children's bulletin, we don't have this picture, right? We don't want our kids to see this scene, right? A bunch of people around Jesus angry with rocks ready stone. And Jesus responds and he says, okay, I can see you're angry. So, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which one of them are you going to stone me? He's like, listen, I've done six miracles in your presence so far, which one are you going to kill me for? Their response is, it is not for a good work, by the way, they call what Jesus does good, by the way, that we are going to stone you, but it's for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered him, is it not written in your law that I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and all scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the father consecrated and sent into the world you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? Stop there. Number one, you will always hear, well, Jesus never says he's God. Take him to this passage. Twice he says I and the father are one, I'm God. And he says I'm the son of God. No question, no, no uh, mistaking or misleading, Jesus declares that he is God. Now, the problem is, is that Jesus answers them with the law that they say they need to uphold. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 82 for a moment. Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Let's go over there real quick. Keep your hand in uh, the book of John. But in Psalm 82... We are going to see exactly what Jesus is talking about. And so we've got this accusation of hostility against him. And what we are going to see is now a deliberation needs to take place. So as you're turning to uh, the book of Psalms, write this down. There's a deliberation. We have an accusation. Now we have a deliberation taking place. And in that deliberation... There's a decision that needs to be made about Jesus, okay? Now, Jesus has said he is God. They say you're a blasphemer. Jesus' response as they're about to throw rocks to him is go to Psalm 82. Here's what Psalm 82 says if you don't have it open. If you do, follow along. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, is that big G or little g? Little g, okay? So this is not talking about the Trinity. In the midst of the gods holds judgment. He says to the gods, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So when we see Jesus say that you have been called gods, he's not saying that we are gods as Jesus is God. This word gods is used for angels, and quite frankly, it's used for angels. People in authority, in great authority. So, what Jesus is saying is Psalm 82 is talking to you, Pharisees. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the little gods, the little authority people, the little powers that be, that God's going to come and hold judgment. So, What Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, God's got a word for you. It's verse two. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So Jesus is saying, God's got a word for you little gods. You think you are God. You think that you can judge people as God. You think you can do what you want. You think you can tell people whether they're in or out. And you think you do this purely and in a holy way. And God says you, you are judging unjustly and you're showing partiality to the wicked. So he says, listen, Pharisees, the reason why you want me dead is you see me as competition. What is the competing thought? I say I'm God and you think you're God. Can I tell you right now that at the crux of the issue about you and Jesus is a competition between who you think is God Either you believe Jesus is God, and you bow the knee, and you fall down, and you worship, you praise him, you adore him, you give him your life, you give him everything that you have, you dedicate all of your days to worshiping and adoring him, or you say, no, Jesus, you're competition because I'm God. And some of you are walking around right now as if you are God. And Jesus says, there's judgment. Judgment is coming to you. You are a little Pharisee thinking that you're walking around and you get to pick and choose what you do, when you do it, how you do it, and you can say to God, I want nothing to do with you. Of which Jesus says that God has a judgment for you. Instead of giving justice to the weak and to the fatherless and maintaining the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescuing the weak and the needy, delivering them from the hand of the wicked... He says in verse six, I said, you are God, son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. He says, listen, your time of leading is gonna come to an end. And just like Antiochus Epiphanes, who would see his end, just like Hitler, who would see his end, just like Stalin, just like every rebel against God, they are going to see their end. Like men, they shall die. And they shall fall like every other prince, like every other king, like every other ruler. Pharisees, you are going to die. Of which to Jesus, he says, notice in verse 8, arise, O God, big G or little g, help me out. Big G, thank you. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. What Jesus is saying is I was there when I gave you the authority you had. You wasted that authority and my heavenly father said, son, get up. I want you to go down there. I want you to judge the nations and in doing so, you shall inherit the nations. He says, listen, I'm God. I was there when you were given your power and I'm the one who is going to judge you. And I'm telling you this morning, in no uncertain terms, You have a choice, either Jesus is God or you, like the Pharisees, are saying you're God and Jesus says, I'm coming, I'm coming to judge you. What do you think about Jesus? Now, Jesus declares, by the way, he gives evidence as to why this is true. He uses the Old Testament, Psalm 82. We also know that he has said numerous times that his words are the fulfillment of the prophets, Now we have the works three times in our text. He says he's doing the works of the Father. These are the miracles that he's done. He's done six of them so far. Water into wine, healing of the nobleman's son, uh, healing the man who had been crippled for 38 years, turning loaves and fishes to feed the multitudes, walking on water, and then this final one, healing a blind man. And this one is important because healing of blind individuals, giving sight to the blind was something only God could do according to the law. Write these passages down. Psalm one, Psalm six eight, and Isaiah 35, 4 and 5 all say that only God gives sight to the blind. So he's like, I've proven it. I've given sight to the blind and you still will not believe. And then he says, just as a, a final thing, John says, And everything in verse 41 that John the Baptist said about Jesus was true. All of these witnesses about Jesus say that he is the son of God. So we have a classic decision to make. We have seen the accusation, the public views Jesus with hostility, we see the deliberation that a decision about Jesus is a necessity. You have to make a decision about Jesus and you saying no to Jesus and yes to yourself is a decision, it is a hostile decision nonetheless. You have to pick. So now the conclusion is in. What is the conclusion? The verdict is there, write this down. The verdict's in, it's time for you to pick your identity. Amanda and I right now in our free time are watching a a law show on, on television. And every time that we get to the point, after hearing the case, and hearing all the arguments of the case, the judge or the jury will render their verdict. And every time I hit the pause button right when they are about to say, have you gotten to your verdict? And they say, in the case of so and so, we the jury say this. And right then I hit pause and I say to Amanda, Amanda, what do you think? What do you think, guilty or innocent? And she usually gives an answer. She's usually wrong, I'm usually right. But as a jury, we're sitting there and we're watching it unfold and we're trying to determine who's right and who's wrong. You and I are the jury right now. We've heard Jesus. We've heard the Pharisees. We've got a decision to make. Now, notice this decision is in verse 30 to verse 31, that little space in my Bible where it says in John chapter 10 that I and the Father are one. Then there's a space in my Bible because we've got to make a decision, Are we gonna pick up stones and kill Jesus? Or are we gonna prove that we are a part of the flock of God and in verse 27, hear his voice and follow him? Now, to those that will follow him, the text tells us that we will have eternal life. He says in verse 28, I give them eternal life, They will not perish, so you have eternal life, and then you have everlasting life. Eternal life is the abundant life that John 10, earlier in the text Jesus was speaking about, that you will have life and have it in all abundance. That's the eternal life. Everlasting life is a response to John 10, Uh, 10 where it says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So what he's saying is, listen, the Pharisees can't steal this or kill uh, kill this from you. You cannot have this faith destroyed. You will have an eternal and everlasting life. And then he says, notice, I will give them eternal life. They will never perish and none of them will be snatched out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What he's saying is, is listen, there are thieves out there. We talked about those thieves last week. And what Jesus is saying, listen to me, followers of Jesus Christ, no one can take you away from Jesus. If you have given your life to Jesus, no one can take that away. You can't take it away. The devil can't take it away. False teachers can't take it away. The world can't take it away. Sin can't take it away. You are always safe and secure in the hands of God himself. But in order to be safe and sound in God's hands, listen to me, friends, you have to make a decision to worship Jesus as Savior and Lord. And if you don't, then the Bible says in other places that the only thing that you can expect is a fiery uh, judgment, where it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so that decision on that future is based on the decision you make in the here and now. Will you make much of Jesus in this life? Will you follow him? Will you follow where he leads and go where he goes? Or will you, in rebellion, choose to go your own way? Listen to me, friends, and I'll close with this. You have a choice. It is either repentance which leads to abundant everlasting life or it is rebellion which leads to hell. My prayer and my hope is that you will listen to the words of Jesus and your opinion about Jesus will be that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Amen.